called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the, the body, body does not, not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Good morning, Transit Church. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 58. Uh, please read along with me. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, your labor, is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord for us, the people of God. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Check it out. I got a voice. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's any better than last week, but we'll see if it lasts through the whole sermon. If not, hey, one of y'all come up and finish the sermon for me. Uh, I think, uh, I assume you know we're going to be in 1 Corinthians again. We're talking about the resurrection once again. Uh, so if you don't have your uh, Bibles out, go ahead and pick, take them out because you're going to need them. We're going to finish chapter 15 today. If you're with us for the first time, we have been working through for the last five, going on six months, this uh, New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. And he's writing to a church several years after starting that church. So he came to Corinth, he founded it, uh, sort of put the church in, uh, organized it, put it together, and then he left to start other churches. And so several years later, Paul is writing a letter to these, these people in this local church to both encourage them in regards to how they're living the Christian life in this port city, but also challenge them, uh, admonish them really, in ways that they are also living uh, the Christian life in this very secular, kind of pagan city. And as we come to the end of the letter, he happens upon the topic of the resurrection, particularly because the Corinthians were having uh, an, a difficulty in grasping the idea of a bodily resurrection. <clears throat> so it feels kind of weird to talk about the resurrection outside of Easter, but I'm sure it wasn't it wasn't Passover. It wasn't, you know, Easter when Paul was writing this letter. And so get your mind uh, in, the, in the right framework as we talk about this today. But, uh, but before I get into my sermon, so let me pray and then we'll get going. Father, we're grateful 
for a beautiful day, uh, for the gathering of your church, and for the opportunity to, to open your word and to hear from you. Lord, that's, that's why we're here. We don't need to hear from a man. We need to hear from you, Holy Spirit, and what you would have for us today. And so I pray that, um, <clears throat> that you would take your words and, uh, and gift them to us in ways that we can receive them. God, open our eyes to see from the scriptures what you have for us. But more than that, God, open our minds and our hearts uh, to receive. We pray that we would um, not only learn more about the, our future, the, the, the resurrection of our bodies, God, that you give us faith for that, but more importantly, God, that you grow us, grow us into this, this idea of the, this impending victory. Christ has already won a victory, and we just get to rest in it. Hallelujah and amen. We pray this in Christ's name, and everyone said, amen and amen. So the, the Corinthian Christians were having a difficult time receiving the idea of a resurrection. A lot of times we paint these ancient cultures, ancient cultures as being archaic and gullible and just believing anything, but I don't think, uh, we, we sense it here, these Corinthians in the first century are no different than us 20, in the 21st century. Uh, just the idea of someone dying, being put in the grave under dirt, and then rising to, to live and walk and talk again was like unfathomable to them. But think about it. It's unfathomable to us, too. Like, we might watch The Walking Dead on TV, but how many of you would like really want to see that happening in like real life? Most of us would, would turn the other way and run. And so this idea was a far stretch for them. In the Greco-Roman world, we should, I should add, uh, it was also the prevailing thought that the body was not good. It was, it was thought to be evil. The body was something that you wanted to escape from or get out of. And so for the Corinthians, influenced by this very secular culture, and more, more so the philosophers in that culture who were Gnostics, the, the, the mind and the soul were good. Those were the parts of you that endured forever, but this body was going to decay, and they wanted to get out of it. So this teaching that you'd have a, a body that lasted forever with that soul was not good news for them. And so Paul's defense the resurrection because the Corinthians were misinterpreting the nature of the resurrection. They interpret, misinterpreted, they misunderstood how God could take a body that was dead bring it back to life in a way that seemed plausible or even acceptable. And these are important points for us as a church to, to ponder as well. Particularly one verse that Paul says last week, verse 16 in chapter 15, Paul says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And so that's an important point. It's, it's the most important point. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, that means Christians are basically liars about everything that we profess to be true about God. It means that there is no good news in Jesus. And sadly enough, we have nothing to put our hope in in life after the life that we're currently living. And that's kind of sad. All right, so that's the bad news. This is going to be a good news sermon. I'm like, I'm, I'm like raring to go because it, it starts good, it ends good. <clears throat> but before I get to the good part, let me, let me pose this. Let me start with some sobering news. So you know your life is ticking down, right? So back in the back in the sound booth, they actually 
keep, they keep a time on me. And they, they got like cards up to say, all right, you're 30 minutes in, you're 35 minutes in, you're 45. They got to stop sign and say, all right, Jeff, stop talking. And that's kind of how like your life is going right now. That, that, that God has started a clock from the moment you were born, come out of the womb, actually before you came out of the womb. And that clock, is the alarm's going to go off and you're going to expire at some point. That's kind of a depressing thought, right? That death is coming for all of us. And I think as I grapple with, with death, at, my birthday was last week, I'm 54, so I've already lived half of my life probably, although my granddad lived to 90, so I'm, gonna get, I'm probably going to get to that. My dad's like 78, and he's like going strong. Bad knees, but the rest of him is doing pretty good. So I got a few years of life, yeah, but, but my, my time is coming. But here's the thing. We all deal with death a little differently. Some of us, when we think of death, we just get busy. We become workaholics. We keep ourselves busy so that we don't have to think about what's, com- what's coming up. Some others are paralyzed by the fear of impending death. And we're so paralyzed that we aren't even free to live the current life that we're living in. And some of you perhaps might be like that. There are some of us, when we think about death, we want to get as far away from it as possible. What do we do? We, we maintain a healthy lifestyle. We're very disciplined about our bodies, what we put in it, how we exercise. If there were a fountain of youth, we'd go there and dip ourselves in it. But what we're doing with that is we're trying to prolong our life any way that we can so that we don't have to, so we can uh, stay away from that impending death that's coming. I said last week that some of us are hedonists. A hedonist is someone that says there's nothing that comes after the life that we're currently living in. So they're, they're kind of like, let's live for the day. Let's, let's, let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry because tomorrow might be my day to die. And some of us take, uh, take that stance in regards to, to death. Let's, let's do it today. Let's soak up the good life because we can't, I mean, tomorrow's not promised. There is no tomorrow. And then, of course, we're a room for the Christians, right? And as Christians, most of us in this room have really bought into this, this faith thing that, that there is, by faith, life after death coming. And Jesus is the model for that. But even in that, my contention is that most of us still have this hedonist kind of a uh, thing in the backdrop of our minds. We save up for retirement. We, we do like try to make all of our efforts to make this life as fulfilling and as best as we can because even though kind of by faith we think there's going to be life after death, I mean, we don't know what that's going to look like. It, it may be less than. It may not be as fulfilling as the life that I'm currently living. And then again, I would say we're still trying to prolong our lives because we can't trust what comes after death. I think on top of all these ideas of how we react to the thought of death is this idea of the agony of defeat. The agony of defeat. And that's what the thought of death feels like for most of us. It's, it's like giving in and losing the most important fight there is, and that's the fight of life. We all want some taste of victory. There's something in us that wants to do everything we can to avoid the agony of defeat. I heard uh, uh, Zoe and I were riding in this morning, and I heard a commentator, a Christian commentator, talking about there's a fight in all of us. And it's not, not just a fight to be competitive, for, like in a sportsman-like kind of way. It's a fight to endure in life that's in us. And it's not necessarily us conjuring that up. God put it 
in us. And that speaks to a yearning in our hearts for an eternal victory. And the victory that we want is a victory over death. One commentator says it like this. He says, the thrill of victory at all costs is pursued because the agony of defeat is an appetizer of death, namely an echo from the future, reminding all people that, there are, that they are perishable. Decay, disintegration, deterioration, and loss are fought against because they are all signposts on the road that leads to death. Limitations are rebelled against to ensure ourselves that we are not moving in the direction in which we know we're moving. Here's what Stephen Um is saying. He's saying, we intuitively know that death is our real enemy, and so we do everything in our power to fight against it. And that, folks, is why the doctrine of the resurrection is so key, so important for us. It's our hope. The hope of the resurrection is that the enemy, our greatest enemy, doesn't get the win. That death doesn't get the final word. Rather, Jesus gets the final word in his own resurrection. Jesus defeats death by rising from the grave. And all of us who put our faith in Jesus will get to victoriously see death put to death forever. And that's good news. That's our great hope. And so the Corinthians are hearing this doctrine. They're struggling to believe it because they don't, they don't understand how something like that could ever happen. They're trying to imagine how in the world is God going to animate dead bodies? Fast forward to, you know, that's the first century, and they're thinking that. Fast forward to the 21st century, and aren't we thinking that same thing? Like, like today, I think 20, 30% of us no longer are put in a coffin and then put in the ground. A third of us, because of the cost nowadays, choose to get cremated. What about a body that's, you know, for whatever reason, mutilated and then put in the ground and decayed? How in the world is God going to put us back together again? Don't we ask some of those kinds of questions? Am I the only one? I think those are good questions for us to ask. And we're fortunate that Paul doesn't answer all of them. Paul only has the revelation that God gives him but he does ask, answer some of those questions for us. And so Paul is going to tell the Corinthians three things. He's going to tell them how, he's going to tell them what, and he's going to tell them so what. How, how, resurrected, how resurrected bodies come back, what resurrected, resurrected bodies will be like, and then the so what. How then should we live? All right, so let's look at uh, how resurrected bodies come back in a new way. Verse 35. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So first Paul says to Corinthians, they're fools. And you know, it's not beneath Paul to call somebody a fool. He does that to the Galatians when they were getting the gospel wrong. And here, you got to realize Paul is talking to a group of people who were boasting in how much they knew. They knew, they were boasting in their wisdom and in their knowledge. And Paul is very simply saying, well, I mean, if you know so much, can't you just look around you and see how God has created the, the nature around you? Look at creation and how it displays what it displays. God is right before you displaying 
who he is and what he looks like in the nature that's around you. If you're new to Christianity, here's one uh, very important doctrinal idea about Christianity. Christianity believes that all of creation displays the invisible character and the qualities of God. We can see who God is and what he's like in the nature that's around us. Paul says in Romans 1, 19 and 20, he says these words. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And then listen to these words of the psalmist. This is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his hand. There's psalm after psalm that says that we can know who God is by looking at the creation that he's created. That's general revelation. That we can know who God is just by looking at things. And so if you were today after church to go to the Shenandoah Mountains and just to look at what God has made, then your, your lips should be on the floor as you experience the grandeur of God's creation. And you should say uh, without hesitation, God is majestic. Or if next summer you should go to the, to the ocean and you're having a, a, a vacation at the beach, when you see the ocean, you should recognize how powerful God is. When you look at a newborn baby, you should think, man, God cares about weak things of the world, even those that can't contribute to the earth right now. And when you look at a flower, you should see God's creativity and also the beauty of God, but also the resurrection realities that God is bringing about. And so Paul is challenging the Corinthians. You guys are so smart, but you got no imagination. Look at what's around you, and you have evidence of how God made everything to work. We're no different, are we? Most of our problem isn't intellectual. We don't lack knowledge. In fact, you could be the stupidest person on earth, and because you got a smartphone, you got everything. I mean, you can like tap, 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 swipe up, and you got everything that you need to know right at your fingertips, right? So we don't lack knowledge, but we do lack imagination. For many of us, even with the things of God, we limit what we're willing to accept to what we can wrap our minds around, which means that we're trying to control our environment, and we do that with God. We put God in the box of our own making. We try to form God into an image that we can understand. Any of y'all read fiction? My wife's the only person that raised her hand. <clears throat> right, all right, so I should read more fiction. In fact, my wife tries to get me to read more fiction. I'm just like... I'm shoving her off, right? But here's, here's, what I, here's what I hear about those of you that read, that read fiction. When you read fiction, uh, of course, an author is, is uh, creating a story. He's developing characters and a plot line. But this gives your mind's eye an opportunity to fill in the gaps. And you get to use that imagination to create this, this picture that the, that the author might have started, but you're the one sort of helping it develop. That's why we like authors like Tolkien and J.K. Rowland and, and C.S. Lewis. They, these authors and their writings draw us into what they're describing. And I think there's something in that that God wants us to gain. The, the, these great fiction writers are, and masters, they're, they're masters of creating a picture in our minds that welcomes us into another world. My family, we love movies. 
Movies are great, but when you go to a movie, basically the director and the producer, they've already done the work for you. They've created this illustration, they've put it up on the silver screen, and they're gonna let you watch it. And, and unless you're watching The Inception, you guys remember that movie, The Inception? Y'all don't remember that movie? All right, I'm not necessarily endorsing it, but that's the only movie where I was like, all right, what just happened, <laughs> right? But with every other movie, we're like, all right, that's, that, that's what it was. But what we're being invited into is not to just, not to do that with scripture, to, to not fall prey that, that we would look at the things that are in our world today and limit what God is doing in his world and the world beyond to only what we can sense with our natural senses. Paul is inviting us to look at what's around us in this current world, but to let our imagination soar to, what, to a world that we can't see yet. And we have to do that to imagine the, uh, the resurrection rightly. One commentator writes that though the resurrection is intelligible, it's also incomprehensible and it's indescribably beautiful. It's going to be something beyond our imagination. Yet God tells us to look at the world around us for semblances of that world yet to come. He says, Paul says in his writing, he says, look at a, a, a grain of wheat. Look at this picture here this small grain of wheat that's put into the ground and that blossoms up to this beautiful plant. Or, or look at this kernel of, of corn. So are you going to show the wheat and the corn? I don't have a picture of that. My fail. Y'all can imagine wheat and corn, right? <laughs> right? If you can't imagine it, like... Seriously, I didn't grow up on a farm. I don't know what wheat looks like. How does that get to my plate? But here's the point. These small seeds and kernels produce plants that become food on our tables that, that sustain us. Paul is saying something similar. He says, God has from the beginning of time given us a picture in nature and creation that gives us a window into a day when your body is a seed that metaphorically is sown into the ground. God germinates it and he comes up with a new body. How does he do that? We don't need to know. We just need to know by faith that he's going to do it. And if God can do that with all of nature and with all of creation, why would he not want to do that with the pinnacle of his creation, you and I? In John 12, uh, Paul, uh, John is, is describing uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, and some Gentiles, some uh, Greek proselytes come to Jesus, and he decides to teach them about his own uh, death and resurrection. He says these words in verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So, of course, Jesus is talking about his own death and resurrection here. And Paul is taking his cues from Jesus. He's iterating that the process of resurrection is a process of transformation that we're going to be changed. We will be transformed what we presently experience in our bodies, bodies that are weak, bodies that are broken, bodies that are decaying almost every second. Our bodies are gonna die. The aging process is something that none of us can stop from a newborn baby that's born to the oldest person in this room. We're all on this trajectory of, of our bodies decaying. But God is slowly letting our bodies break down and fall apart. Why? Because when they go down to the ground, they're going to be sown such a way that he's going to resurrect a new one. 
And there's a few people in this room that, I mean, can't wait, right? Because your current body has failed you in ways that you can't correct and that medicine can't correct and all the wisdom of the world can't correct. But God is going to do that in the resurrection. So I was talking to my sister the other day. My, my, my nephew Jacob had a birthday, so I called Jacob and ended up talking to my sister. And I was reminded years ago, my sister used to, <clears throat> she used to incessantly lease cars. Like she would always, every two, three years, she'd get a new car. She used to drive Lexus. I mean, like one of the best cars. And I mean, she'd have some bad cars. Uh, and of course, if you're a person that leases cars, that's not a bad thing. Uh, generally, a person that leases cars wants to do that, not only because of the cost, but you just like new stuff, right? The, the fresh smell, the fresh ride, the new technology, nice seats, I mean, all the trinkets that you get with a newer car. And so whenever I would talk to my sister when she was leasing these cars, she doesn't anymore because she has kids and she needs to, you know, she's, she's changed, her, changed her ways. But whenever I talked to my sister, she'd all, you know, even though she'd, she'd be driving a really nice car, she'd always be talking about the car that she was going to get when her lease gave out. It was like the anticipation of it. And I think of my sister when I think about this idea of, of resurrection because of really her anticipation is the anticipation that all of us should have. Why can't we think about our bodies like that? That we would look at the world around us, especially not now during the fall when like leaves are falling off and like it's turning in the, in the, in the winter, but in the spring and summer when everything is blossoming and, and fruit is growing, that we would say, man, someday I'm going to be like that. God's going to sow me and he's going to bear fruit through my own body. A body that won't give out, that won't decay, that has nothing wrong with it. And, and even though I'm trying to describe it now, the way that our bodies are going to work and the way they're going to exist is going to be far greater than our minds can even imagine right now, such as the resurrection. So here's the question. How in the world is it going to happen? Can I be honest? I don't know. God hasn't seen fit in the Bible to tell us all of that, but, but here's, here's what we have to receive by faith. God is going to make it happen. And those of us who put our faith in Jesus, that he's forgiven us of our sin, that he himself rose from the grave, we have this great hope that as Jesus was and currently is, so shall we be. Jump down to verse 51. Behold, I will tell a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And so here's what Jesus is, is what Paul is saying. He's saying this resurrection thing is going to happen when Jesus comes back. When he returns, he's talking about the second advent. So in three weeks, we're going we're gonna, to um, we're going to start celebrating Advent, the Christmas season. The Advent season is uh, a remembrance that Jesus has come and an anticipation that he's coming again. And so that's what, um, that's what Paul is introducing here. He, he elaborates on this idea a little bit more in 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. Verse 15, he says, For this we declare to you by our word from the Lord. So Paul is getting a revelation of what the resurrection is going to look like from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, 
with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's going to be pomp and circumstance when Jesus comes back. Jesus is coming back. Of course, Revelation gives us more pictures of what that's going to look like. But what he's describing here in regards to the resurrection is there's going to be a command of God. There's going to be an angel that gives this command. There's going to be a trumpet that sounds. And then he's going to cause all those who've gone, who've died, who are in the grave in some way or fashion to rise. And then those of us who are still alive at the second coming are going to be caught up with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. That's eternity right there, folks. Therefore, he says, encourage one another with these words. Here's what's in, what encourages me. Those of us who've had family or friends who uh, have loved Jesus and have since died, guess what? This is the moment where Jesus is going to resurrect them. That, that the thing that they've hoped for and died hoping about is going to happen. That day, that, that day is coming when they'll get a brand new body. And those of us, if any of us are still alive, when Jesus comes back, he's, when he returns, and Paul says that could be any moment, we'll be transformed in an instant. He says, in the twinkling of an eye. And so here's the second thing Paul wants us to know from our text. What kind of body are we going to get? Jump back up to verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. Paul is painting this picture of, of the types of bodies that exist on the earth. Animals have one kind of flesh, one composition. Humans have another. And then he uses the word glory to describe heavenly bodies. Those are the luminaries in the sky, the sun, the stars, the moon, the meteors, as opposed to the, the glory of our earthly bodies on earth. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. And then skip down to verse 50. So I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Here's what Paul is describing. He's saying God is going to give us a body for the environment that we that we live in. And so while we're on earth, we have a body that's fit, that's conducive for us living on earth. That's what creation was all about. The, the order of creation, if you go back and look at that, what God is doing, he is uh, creating, he is bringing order out of chaos and he makes light and then day, ordering the, the rhythms of the earth. And then he makes the earth habitable for the pinnacle of creation, you and me. He does all these things, plants and animals and things, so that you and I can live on earth. And he's going to do the same thing. You know, he gives us a body to live in the environment that, that we're in. And so the body that you have now is fit for living on earth. Guess what? The body you have in the resurrection is going to be fit for living in a new heavens and a new earth. Because the body that you have now, he's saying here, it, it wouldn't thrive, it wouldn't survive in the reality of a new heaven and the earth. So we'll be given in the resurrection a new body made for a heavenly earth. Here's an important point, important side note. The Bible doesn't teach that we're going to, 
going to leave this earth and hang out in the clouds forever. So if you believe that cartoon, all right, put that aside, right? The, the teaching of Scripture is that the heavens come to earth, like out of the sky, like a city coming down, and God is going to renew this current earth that it might be the new dwelling place of God, because that's really what the, the story of the Bible is, that God comes. God wants to be our God. He invites us to be his people, and just like the tabernacle in the, in the Old Testament wilderness, God comes to dwell amongst us. We see Jesus replicate that in the beginning of the Gospels. He comes to dwell amongst us, John 1, and he's going to do that again in his second coming. He's going to renew it all. But still, admittedly, and I, 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 I deal with this too, there's trepidation about the resurrection, isn't there? Because we don't know what's coming. Have you ever said to yourself, oh, Lord, I mean, please don't come back until I've experienced this. All right, you define what this is. For some of you, I, like, I want to get married. I want to have some kids. It might be a, 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 a goal in your job. It might be a bucket list of things. Sometimes we just like, all right, Lord, I just want to experience this before you come back. I want you to come back, but please like, wait until I can, I can do this one thing. I think what Paul's describing here is there, there's not going to be an experience or sensation on this earth, be it a food taste or sexual intimacy that's going to ever be able to compete with the sensations and experiences of heaven in our new resurrected body forever. The very way we get to experience life will be far greater than anything you and I could ever imagine. Some ask this question, are we going to be able to eat meat? That's like the, the question of the century, right? Am I going to get to eat meat in heaven? I read a lot this week on the resurrection, just thoughts of it. The funniest thing that I heard was a guy that was saying, all right, so, all right, so there's going to be animals. He's, he's saying, there's, there's got to be animals in heaven. God wouldn't make animals and, you know, bring us close to them and make us love them and not bring them to heaven to, to, to partner with us in heaven. And he's saying, so it doesn't make sense that, that the animals would have to sacrifice their eternal lives for, for, <laughs> for our tasting sensation. So here's what's going to happen. The animals will, they'll like grow an extra, uh, uh, extra sirloin, or, or extra breast or extra thigh, and they'll gift it to us so that we can eat whatever we want to eat. So those of you who are meditorians, I don't know. That sounds idiotic, doesn't it? It was funny. I had to say it. Here's, here's what I believe. I, I, there's going to be something that's going to satisfy us a hundred times whatever your longings might be, right? Whether it's meat or veggies or all the things that you desire to do in this life, taste things that you want to see, things you've wanted, things you desire to have on this earth, everything in the new heavens and the earth, you're going to have it, and it's going to be way, way, way better. And your resurrected body is going to be designed perfectly for that. Look at verse 43. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it will be raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it's written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that's first with the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul is reminding the Corinthians and us 
Though we were born in this world in the image of Adam, we will be resurrected in the image of Christ. And then he gives us some descriptions of what that image might look like. In Adam, he says, it's sown in dishonor. That's what we gain. That's what we, that's the distinction that we earn from Adam. Adam being the federal head. And so what Adam did in the Garden of Eden when he disobeyed God, doing what God said not to do, we inherit that. And so our every thought, our every action is laced in sin. And until today, not only you, but those who come from you, from your loins, that's passed on to every human being that's, plant, that's, that's born on this planet. We're sown in dishonor. The Bible says that we're born in sin, that we're born with a bent towards uh, self and away from God. And so it's sown in dishonor. It will be raised in glory. This is something that we inherit from Jesus and that we will inherit from Jesus in a resurrected state. Here's something interesting about Jesus. Jesus came in such a way to be the very glorious picture of what God is like. But instead of being honored, think about Jesus, what he endured on this planet. He was dishonored. And at the cross, he was mocked. But instead of dishonoring us at the cross, here's what John 17 says, that Jesus prays that God would forgive us so that those of us who are sown in dishonor in the likes of Adam might one day be raised to glory. Thank God for Jesus, right? And so God's honor of Jesus gets passed down to us. So instead of being dishonored, we can be honored one day and glorious because we're going to be like him. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. Our perishable bodies are also, Paul says, sown in weakness. Not only are we born into this world in sin, but we're broken and bruised by it. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Your body keeps a score. Some of you have been wounded by the sins of others. Some of you have been wounded by your own sins. And your body remembers abuse and neglect. And unfortunately, we bring that into our relationships and it hampers us. It hampers us in terms of how willing or how able we're able to give ourselves fully to another. And some of us um, have been wounded so much that we protect ourselves so that we won't get hurt again. All of us have been wounded deeply by sin, either by someone else's sin or the sins that we have ourselves committed. And we carry around those wounds of sin in our bodies. And so we are sown in weakness. And if we're honest, don't we all feel weak in some way or another? We're weak in courage. Sometimes we're weak in strength. We're weak in resolve. Even even the fittest, the, the smartest the most resolved of you in the room. We all bear these signs of weakness in our body, and that's why we need hope, that this present body, though sown in weakness, will be raised in power. And this is where Jesus ends, Paul ends on, that we'll be raised in power. One commentator says, the language of the resurrected bodies suggests a physical, spiritual reality just like blended together. It's, it's going to be a spirit-constituted body, meaning the spirit brought it about and the spirit is infused in every single cell of this resurrected body in such a way that it moves harmoniously, without effort, to the rhythms of God's very will. There's not going to be a struggle for us to walk with God. There, will be, there won't be a fight against our desires that God has for us. Every cell in our body is absolutely going to be connected to God's very will for your existence. Don't you long for that? That you're not fighting against God? 
It's like one day you wake up and you like, I feel God's pleasure today. I did my quiet time. I got some breakfast. I'm going to go to work. It feels like the wind is in my sails and I have God's favor. I, like, I can do nothing wrong. God loves me and I'm his favorite kid, right? And then I wake up the next day, not so much. It's like I'm fighting against my flesh the whole day. There's nothing that's going right. Like, God, do you hear me? Do you even love me today? Here's what he's saying. We're not going to have these fluctuations. We're not going to struggle to walk with God. There's not going to be a fight against our desires that God has, the desires that God has for us. We'll be raised in a spiritual body, raised in glory, raised in power. And every cell of my being will walk in the rhythms of God's will. We'll live in the most fulfilled state ever. Man, I can't wait. I kind of like life as it is right now. And my body feels healthy almost days. But on those other days, I'm like, Lord, I can't wait. And all this is because of Jesus, folks, who was imperishable. Jesus was imperishable. He wasn't subject to any of this stuff in eternity, and yet he took on humanity. Jesus took on a body so that he could become perishable, like you and me. It's unfathomable. The God of the universe, the second, the, the, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, became perishable so that he could take on a body, so that he could go to the cross for you and me and die in our place for our sin in a perishable body, so that he would die in our place, so that we would be, he could be buried in a grave, so that he would pay for our sins sins that he himself did not commit. And he was raised with an imperishable body so that he could give all of us who are perishable an imperishable future. That's what Jesus does for us, Transit Church. So the last question is, how then should we live? This is my favorite part. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the, the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's why you should firstly love Christianity, but more importantly, love the good news of the gospel. We have this certain future hope of the resurrection of our bodies in Christ. And, and, and Paul is, he's exhorting the Corinthians, and of course by extension he's exhorting us, that there is a future hope that should shape how you live today. If you tap into the faith that Jesus saved you and he's going to resurrect you, then, then that should shape how you live your everyday. It's, an, it's a resurrection kind of a persona that you should have about your life. Notice in particular the language that Paul uses here. He says, he gives us the victory. Who is he? It's God. God gives us the victory. God wins. He gives us the victory. Um, let me liken it to this. So I went to, I went to West Point. Y'all know I went to the uh, service academy. We got a couple of y'all in the room. Whoop, whoop, right? So check it out. At West Point, like particularly during football season, which it is now, we call the Corps of Cadets the, the 12th man. Several colleges do that. And the, you know, the 12th man was just the body of cadets. I went to West Point during the good years. Like we had four years of, of winning football seasons. We uh, not only had winning, winning, uh, uh, winning years, we went to three bowl games, which is like 
impossible for a, you know, a, a service academy, considering how they, how they recruit not for NFL, you know, to send people to NFL, they recruit to send like men in the, to, to the army. And so um, in these good years of football, the, the, the football team uh, would, uh, would attribute their wins to the Corps of Cadets. Now, I mean, what were we doing? We were just, I mean, all, just a bunch of guys and gals, right? Teenagers, for the most part. We're in the stands, hanging out, watching what's going on in the field. You got the football team fighting for their lives on the field of friendly strife, doing the best they could to, to win. And all the while, we're just in the stands um, doing a bunch of army cheers. If, 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 if I had time, I'd have Kevin Byrne stand up and do a, a Usme rocket. Like, boom, yeah, stop it. Yeah, yeah. We didn't do a thing but stand up and cheer. Isn't that like the gospel? Isn't that like, isn't that like what, what God does for us in Christ? We don't do a thing, folks. God comes. He sends us Jesus. He does everything for you and I. He, gives, he, gives, he lives the perfect life that you and I should, but we can't. He gives us his perfection. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us his life. He gives us by faith the resurrection. He will ultimately give us a body to enjoy eternity forever with him. And he's the one that gets the victory. And here's what Paul is saying. God, gives, God gets the victory, but you and I get the win. Ain't that like God? You ever watch a movie and as soon as you start watching it, somebody slips up and tell you how, tells you how it's going to end. Like, I hate that. But you watch it anyway. Or say you're watching Netflix, and you're watching something that you've already watched, but it's such a good movie. You're getting into it. You're, like, <gasps> you're reacting to it because you've forgotten what's going to happen. That's, that's what Paul is doing right here for the Corinthians. He's doing that for us. He's like, come on, jog your memory. Don't you remember? We win. He's, he's saying, you got to remember this. We're the ones on the winning team. And so he says, so live like it. It's the fourth quarter. There's two minutes. We're already down to the two-minute timeout. We're up by two touchdowns. We got the ball, and we're in the stands. I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. That's what's happening. Except Paul doesn't, like, that, that chant wasn't out back then in the first century. So, so here's what Paul says. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We win, Transit Church. We win. And in the end, it's going to be amazing. But here's Paul's his encouragement to us. He's like, everything counts. Stop living like you're going to lose. We've already won in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. What good news. What good news that God has won the victory and we get to stand up in the stands, root for all that's going to go on, and then he says we get to win along with him. We thank you, Lord, that that death doesn't get the final word, that, that the sting of, of sin, that the poison that courses through our veins even now was taken in the body of Jesus, that Jesus took it into the grave and he rose up without it. And so the antidote for our sin is the victory that Jesus gets over death, hell, and the grave. And, and our faith is in him. And because, uh, because of who he was and what he's done, we know that we're going to be like him.
And so, God, would you give us increased faith to, to see Jesus not only as he was walking the earth, but as he is exalted, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us even now, cheering us on that we would believe everything that he said. Help us, Lord, to live lives that are abundant. Help us to abound in every good work. Teach us to live as if you're coming back any moment. And I pray that you help us to be ready when you come. That's our prayer. We pray this in the name of our great Savior, who has won the victory for us, Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.